Hello and welcome to this episode of Indubitably. I'm Kelly. And I'm Josh. And today we're going to be talking about traditional gender roles, how they affect our lives, and do they provide important structure in our society? Do they let the majority of people express their natural tendencies and preferences? Or do they reinforce harmful stereotypes and push people into boxes that limit self-actualization? Spoiler alert, it's probably a little bit of both. <laughs> that's true. I think that's true. And I think also, before we get started, we should probably acknowledge the fact that if we're going to be talking about traditional gender roles, that there is a growing movement that understands gender as a spectrum rather than a binary. But I think it's hard to imagine a restructuring of our world, at least anytime soon, away from these generally bifurcated concepts of male and female. And so long as that's the case, there will also likely be certain things, personality traits, actions, or roles more associated with one than the other. That's not to say that we want to exclude trans and non-binary narratives from any discussion we're having on mm -hmm. Indubitably, but we are, for the sake of having this conversation, focusing a bit more on cis narratives and the cultural expectations of people who are assigned certain genders at birth. We do think that it's important to discuss issues that affect trans and non-binary people, but incorporating that into this discussion would probably not allocate enough time or attention to that and ultimately do those groups a disservice by just paying lip service to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Acknowledging that, something that's interesting here is maybe more than any of the episodes we've done, this is something that affects every aspect of all of our lives. and so. I thought it might be neat to structure this episode by going through the various stages of our life and talking about exactly how gender roles can help define each of them. We'll be going through a discussion that incorporates some of the things that you might be very aware of, like the growing movement for gender reveals. And that starts even before we're born. Then something that maybe wasn't even a consideration, but what kinds of toys and activities we have introduced to us as children. And as we grow up, I think we stop thinking about toys and we start thinking about, you know, romance. So we'll talk a bit about dating and marriage. And the boring side of adulthood, which is employment and careers and those sorts of obligations we have to perform. Career is definitely an obligation, although to be fair, dating sometimes feels like an obligation also. Our episode about the life cycle of traditional gender roles, I suppose, should start before we're even born with the gender reveal. And since I'm a gentleman, Kelly, I'll let you start this episode. Ladies first. Well, thank you. Um, I think. <laughs> do you actually know the origin of gender reveals? I do not. I just thought it was like a creepy white person thing. It's turned into that quite a bit, but the origin is actually pretty benign and something that the creator of the current social movement towards gender reveals actually regrets. But the woman who first popularized them had suffered a few miscarriages and 
she had not had any successful pregnancies that got up to the point where they would be able to discern the gender of the fetus that she was carrying. And to celebrate that she was able to get a pregnancy to that point, she had a gender reveal because it was a landmark of being able to successfully get that far into a pregnancy. It was not necessarily a celebration of the baby's genitals. Mm. It has turned into a celebration of baby's genitals and has caused like a ton of wildfires as a result because people keep setting off fireworks in like the middle of summer during droughts. (laughs) You mean literal fireworks? I thought you meant rhetorical fireworks. Oh, no, no, no. There's been massive, massive damage as a result of gender reveals. Besides just the emotional. And this is probably where we get one of our first assignments of this is what it means to like as a boy. And this is what it means to like as a girl with our, those fireworks, I bet you are blue if it's a boy or pink if it's a girl. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) How did you figure that out? I've been very socially conditioned to know which colors are acceptable for me to wear as a boy. I find it sad that if you wanted to wear pink, you would feel that you couldn't. To be fair, I'm already pretty sunburnt and just red in general. Pink is not a good color for me. Okay, I, I, I understand. Not everybody who wants to wear pink necessarily has the right undertones for it. I feel like our listeners through each episode gets little snippets of what we look like. And so far we've had our taxation episode where apparently I have this huge unruly beard. And now I'm telling them that I'm red and sunburnt. I imagine everybody's visualizing me as Santa Claus right about now. It's not far off. <laughs> wow, thanks. <laughs> I kid, I kid. Anyway, speaking of kids... That was smooth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm great at this. It's very common practice now for people to want to know what kind of baby they're going to have because they steer so many of their decisions about what to do for their baby based upon gender. And I think it's important to dispel at this point that they're not doing necessarily a gender reveal. They're doing a sex reveal because they're basing these assumptions and decisions and color choices off of physical characteristics where gender is more of a psychological characteristic. And I think along with that reveal of sex, they've also now pre-programmed. As soon as that pink confetti hits, they start to visualize the life and what it's going to look like, what toys they're going to be playing with, which we'll get to, what they're going to be wearing, what they're going to do for work, whether they're going to be walking them down the aisle or having them waiting at the altar. All of these things, I think, pre-program themselves into parents' minds as soon as they discover literally what the physical characteristics of the baby are. And there's some backlash to that as well. People are choosing not to find out the gender or sex of their child until the baby is born. And some very, very rare instances of this, but some parents are choosing to raise their children without any gendered pronouns, a genderless name, and even genderless clothing to allow them to come into their own on the gender spectrum. But that's difficult to do in a society that is based very heavily upon binaries like ours is. But I think all this begs the question, is it really so bad to want to know Or to even hope if you're going to have a boy versus a girl. I I could see a lot of parents that would probably be better at raising one versus the other. Or 
maybe you have a couple sons already and you'd like a daughter to add to the fold. I think it's difficult to deny what you want, even if you know that ultimately it doesn't matter. You're going to probably, probably, (laughs) you're definitely going to love the children the same. I think that's what parents usually say, right? But people do tend to want one thing over another and to deny that that's what you actually want is, I think, a dishonest behavior. You can acknowledge that I would prefer X versus Y, quite literally, chromosomes. I just think that if you transition that want into active disappointment to the point where you treat a child differently because they didn't live up to that expectation, then that becomes problematic. But most most people are accepting of their children regardless. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and of course, there's going to be extreme cases of parents that are just, <laughs> let's let's be blunt, bad parents. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think it matters if they got the gender they wanted, they got the gender they didn't want, the kid was a little shorter than they thought, the kid was a ginger. Ugh. You know, any of these things could disappoint a bad parent. But if we're being charitable to the parents, uh, and we have somebody who has the good intentions of the child in mind, is it so bad if they want to know the gender or if they conceptualize what that child's future might look like when they find out what the gender is. In a world where so much of how we operate is based on how you basically enter the world, I think it is important for an understanding of what that child is ultimately going to face based upon their their physical characteristics and ultimately the gender assignment that they have when they're babies. But there are extremes of how parents react to gender reveals. And this is where a lot of really nasty behavior has started to emerge, such as a video that went around on the TikToks. I know you're not on the TikToks. I'm on the TikToks. There's a father who has two young children who are both girls already. His wife is pregnant. They do a gender reveal. The confetti is pink. And he is so actively, visibly, and verbally disappointed Like in front of his female children, he is disappointed that he's having another daughter Mm -hmm. and the the mother and the two other children are celebrating and happy. And he is acting like this is the end of his world. If that child ever sees that and knows that that was the reaction to their gender that their father had, I feel like that would probably do a lot to poison their relationship with their father and feel really bad about themselves. Mm -hmm. But where do you think that's coming from? Do you think it's coming from a place where a father might want to experience having both daughters and sons? Or do you think he's dismissing that female gender and saying it's going to be lesser than what a potential son could have been? I would take it in this instance that he was hoping to get a variety and having more than one kind of child. But whatever the motivation is behind this, that kind of messaging is really damaging. What I think is interesting about all of this is it's self-fulfilling in a lot of ways. If you're a parent and you see blue confetti or apparently blue fireworks in your head, you decide this is what the kid's going to be. Of course, the kid's going to be that you have control over it. Right? So at a certain point, all of these prescriptions uh, based on gender that are passed down from society through the parents, the parents have control to change these things. If you have a daughter and you want a son because you want to do quote unquote son things, 
you could do those with your daughter. No, it's illegal for girls to do things like fishing and playing baseball. <laughs> I do think that it's important to note that the parents are the people who decide what their kids wear, what their kids play with, what the kids do, how the kids act. And if the parent makes all those decisions based on these prescribed roles, it's kind of the parent's fault, not the kid's fault for being born a particular gender. The social conditioning tells people that that is the obligation, that once they realize what kind of child they're going to have, most of the time, people then make decisions that affirm the gendered role that they take off of the biological sex. Mm -hmm. They don't have to, but they do. Yeah, I definitely think there's instances in which they don't want to raise a girl that acts the wrong way or a boy that acts the wrong way. They don't want to have the boy that plays with dolls or the girl that plays in the mud. There's an immense amount of social pressure to have the children that people raise conform to expectations for what that gender should do and, and how they should be perceived. So while you might not have any particular concerns, whether or not the, the child plays with dolls or plays with, I don't know, what do boys play with? Minecraft? I don't know. Hot Wheels. Hot Wheels, sure. I don't give a shit, right? Who cares what a child plays with? But people will see a child of a specific gender playing with something that's outside of the expected type of gender role that's been assigned and start to draw conclusions that they had weak parents or hippies that were raising them or you're raising a bunch of sissies who are all going to grow gay or things like that that are quite damaging to the the psyche of the children who just want to like play with a toy that they're fascinated by. Mm -hmm. So speaking of this, let's take that thought and move into the next stage of life. They've been born now. They're a bit older and they are playing with toys or playing certain sports. And I think the classic one here, speaking of Hot Wheels and dolls, is the McDonald's Happy Meal. Do you get the Happy Meal that comes with the mini Barbie doll? Or do you get the Happy Meal that comes with the Hot Wheels car? A great pain in my life was so that my brother got to play with Legos and I didn't. Mm, what did you get? I had a dollhouse. God, I had a lot of like crafts and art supplies, which is like very similar to how I live my life currently. So I guess that kind of stuck with me. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't so bad. No, I think I took to those things naturally, but I really wanted to have those sorts of things of my own. And I got to play with them when my brother would let me, mm -hmm. but they were his. And that's just kind of the, the line in the sand is you have to be allowed into those activities. You don't just get to get them naturally. And the genderization of the McDonald's Happy Meal actually goes a bit deeper than just what toy is included in it. There was a study in 2020 that looked at the actual messaging on the Happy Meal boxes. So when the toy option at McDonald's is broken down between a boy and a girl, like Hot Wheels and Barbie, the box comes split in half with themed content for the one on one side and the other on the other side. And on the girl-oriented side, verbs that suggest less agency, like try or guess or let, and don't forget, appeared more often, but didn't appear a single time on the boy-oriented side. Uh, what the boys got were words like aim high, 
achieve, battle, capture, challenge, defeat, score, win, rule. And only two of these achievement-oriented words were found on the girl-oriented side. That just seems a bit much. A lot of the toys that are designed for girls also have a significant bent towards domesticity. A dollhouse or having a baby doll or any of those sorts of toys reinforces the ultimate path towards motherhood. A lot of the toys that girls have to play with their dolls or even independently are things like play kitchens or even play cleaning tools. And that hasn't changed very much. My niece plays with, she enjoys it. She genuinely enjoys it, but she plays with toy kitchens and toy foods quite a bit. She also gets to play with a variety of other toys too. So it's not exclusively the type of messaging that she's going to end up in a domestic role, but especially coming out of the 20th century, the emphasis on your role is going to be in the home and caring for children was reinforced by a lot of the toys that were available to children. And I think that this introduces us to a couple of themes of the episode. The one is, are these roles subservient or are they merely specialized? Suggesting that boys should try to become president and girls should be the president's secretary. That's obviously bad. But is it bad to suggest potentially that a girl should be a nurse and a boy should be an engineer? Well, is there anything that inherent to either of those genders that preclude them from doing either of those occupations. Well, actually, so it's something we'll talk about later when we talk about career, but there does seem to be a tendency for genders to gravitate towards different things. So is it possible to avoid that or should we even be avoiding that? I'm not sure. Maybe the approach should be more about empowering the choices that are made rather than changing the choices themselves. Or perhaps it should be an understanding of all of the subtle messaging that happens from infancy onwards that reinforces mm-hmm. and so that's our second theme for the rest of the episode so theme number 1 is this gender role subservient or is it specialized and i think pretty much across the board in any case where it's subservient we can just flat out say it's a bad thing But the question here for the episode is when roles are specialized, is that inherently bad? And then question number two, off of the comment you just made, is kind of a chicken or egg dilemma. Are companies like McDonald's, for example, choosing the toys that go into their Happy Meals because that's what kids like naturally? Or do kids like those toys because they've been told that they should like those toys? You already know what my opinion is on this. Let's say your opinion, because I feel like mine's probably the opposite. (laughs) I feel like there's a good degree of conditioning here. And I feel that's been borne out by a lot of science, but there is so much in a child's mind that is conditioned through exposure. And the McDonald's toys, the color of the nursery that is painted by the parents, the clothing that they're put in when they're babies, all of those things are subtle messages that steer a lot of children into becoming specific kinds of adults. But at the same time, 
this gender binary existed before any of the things you're naming, before paint, before corporations, before Hot Wheels or Barbie. And so if corporations are there to respond to a demand, that would suggest the opposite. So I'm not really sure, chicken or egg. But maybe I do have an argument as we move away from toys, as these kids grow up and they start to work, we can look to careers. And I think that there's a study here that would suggest that potentially nature is a bigger influence than nurture. And that would be the Nordic gender equality paradox. So Nordic countries have been renowned for their high level of gender equality as they have amongst the world's highest employment and education rates for women. But at the same time, Nordic countries also have greater horizontal segregation by sex in comparison to the rest of the European Union. So that means that most women work in different occupations than most men. With women working mainly in the public sector, often education, care, or health, and the private sector being dominated by men who often work with production or engineering. And this is true across all educational levels. So at least this particular corner of the world and the way it operates and the outcomes from that, it seems to suggest that when given the most freedom, genders self-select into these categories. I would argue there's a reasonable explanation for why that's the case currently in that there are a lot of things that happen in society that may accelerate faster than legal norms change. And there might be legal norms that change much faster than societal changes happen. And any women who are in careers now probably were born in the 70s through the 90s when the expectations for what kinds of careers were available to women were still kind of limited in a gendered paradigm based upon what parents were working in at the time, what Gen X was starting to do at the time. I would say that I am a pretty progressive woman who does not fall into a ton of the gendered stereotypes, but I was still brought up in a way that was pretty predestined to become an English teacher. But I would say that a lot of women my age probably had the same sort of expectation based on the fact that they were raised by baby boomers, where that was a heavily gendered generation. I suppose if you looked at just the Nordic region in a vacuum, you could take that analysis. But like, let's compare them to, again, the rest of the European Union, where a lot of the social trends would have been similar. So if there were social trends that were trying to divide genders, those would be relatively uniform, if not worse, in other countries in the European Union. And yet those countries have less horizontal segregation than the Nordic countries do. I would love to revisit this a couple of generations from now and see if that still holds true. And I would wager that it would not. Speaking of wager, in this idyllic system, there is still a problem that I think is interesting. And that is there is still a wage discrepancy between genders. In 2017, the wage gap between Nordic men and Nordic women was 15.3%. So even in a place where, theoretically, at least, we can point to their system and say, hey, people are able to express themselves and live out the career paths that they would choose, there is 
bifurcation between how much men are valued and how much women are valued? I think that might also be a byproduct of those lagging social norms as well. Again, I would say, let's look at this a couple generations from now and see what happens. What's neat here, though, I, I buried the lead a little bit, is in the last couple of years, there were some pretty widespread protests where, for example, 12,000, I think it was, nurses threatened to quit over this wage discrepancy. And then after that, there was a restructuring and a reevaluating of how much people are worth, essentially. And now the wages have standardized at, at least a bit. And I think, you know, this is going back to something I said earlier, maybe that's the solution is instead of trying to change the choice that people are making, the important thing here is to ensure that society is valuing all of the choices equally. A lot of society might argue that this is just the free market. The work is not as important as other work, and there are more people willing to perform it. Therefore, we don't need to pay as much because people are replaceable. It's not as specialized as something like engineering. Now, I know some nurses, and I know that they would probably be pretty pissed off if they <laughs> heard anybody say that they were expendable or didn't perform as important work as other careers. But what does society generally value? Mm -hmm. I think that raises a question of process oriented goals versus outcome oriented goals. So, hypothetical situation here if we had you know, 85% of women were nurses and 85% of men were engineers, but they were able to make that choice and they ended up in those careers free from societal pressure. And both of those occupations were paid at the same rate. Would that be a problematic situation? Would we be unhappy with that world where the process goals seem to be equitable, but the outcome turns out to be seemingly not so much? If that choice was completely organic and not impacted by gender norms or expectations from previous generations, then like who cares? But I don't think that either of those dynamics that currently exist in Scandinavian countries are absent of social pressures, gendered expectations, the history of those societies. They most European societies and most societies globally have distinct gender roles that have been passed along for generations. Mm -hmm. And those things bleed through every aspect of our life, whether or not we want them to. And it's going to be a lot of deprogramming to get away from them. Mm -hmm. All right. You know what? Enough talking about the boring stuff, the jobs, the money. <laughs> Let's get to dating. Let's get to marriage. Because certainly this is a place where gender roles define our human interactions in very large part. I would rather talk about money. <laughs> <laughs> well, on my end, as a man, if I don't have the money, I can't get the dating. So that's why we covered career first before we got to romance. Mm. It's interesting that you think that's the case. Are you going to pay for my dinner? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. then. But I also don't date. So like that's irrelevant. I have dated and I have not really paid much mind to the economic status of the people that I've dated because that was not like a really big consideration for me, but also I'm a weird socialist with a broken brain. 
other people, I think, are more attuned to things like career, wealth, salary, and there's a lot of gendered expectations about those as well. Just because I don't ascribe to them and I don't care does not mean that they're not a thing. Just because you're dating the person living down by the river in their van? Nearly. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've caught some real winners in my past. We'll say that. <laughs> Were they chivalrous? I think that they had some idea of a way that a certain person should behave based upon gender. And then I think that I disabused them of the, I need my door held for me type of thing pretty early on. Cause I don't give a shit. It's funny how that is such a holding the door open for somebody is such a lightning rod of controversy when it comes to this gender roles, chivalry. Is it dead? Is it putting women on a pedestal? Is it a subtle way of implying that they're inferior? Is it that bad if somebody opens a door for, if a man opens a door for a woman? Or if uh, the man pays the bill on the first date or second or sometimes third and always? I feel like I'm being used. You might be. I'm trying to remember the last time I didn't split the check. Yeah. I don't mind. I don't think that there's anything inherently demeaning about having the door held for me. But I think if it was, I have known dudes who would feel weird if they didn't hold the door. If the woman held the door for them, for instance, that would feel like they were put into a subservient role in that interaction, which is stupid because who cares? But I guess they care. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really know why, but again, social conditioning. I think this is interesting too, because the same act with different intentions or a different psychology behind it could either be benign or could be respectful or could be demeaning. Literally at my workplace, I hold the door open for everybody and it's just considered sort of a professional thing to do. Doesn't matter, old, young, man, woman, whatever. I'm there, I'm holding the door open. And if that just carries on to a date, I'm not, I don't think it's respectful. It's probably just a habit at this point, to be honest. I think it's just benign. My workplace, almost all of the really major pathways, the doors are on actuators. So that takes away the entire, like, who's going to hold the door thing because a robot's going to do it. (laughs) So we don't have to get into that weird dance of like a guy holding a door for a woman. And oh no, he held the door for his boss. The boss was a woman. Ah, like it's, it's just, there's no social dynamic to it at all. The door just opens. I think we found the solution for the episode. Robots taking care of everything. You know how I feel about robots. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not great. (laughs) So there is, there is a suggestion that things like opening the door uh, for a woman, paying the bill on a date uh, are examples of a quote, benevolent sexism. And I suppose this is kind of like a microaggression. It's just a little bit sexist or it's sexism with good intentions, I suppose would be the best way to define it. I guess I can understand that that viewpoint. If a, a man decides to behave a certain way towards a woman based upon gendered stereotypes, but it benefits the woman, is she somehow complicit in like upholding gender stereotypes as well? Or is she just paying back patriarchy and getting hers? Mm. I don't fault a woman for accepting 
that a guy will pick up the tab or something like that. I don't personally want to be that kind of person. I I feel beholden to people if I don't get to pay my share. I don't like to be in anybody's debt. And there can be weird expectations if somebody picks up the tab. I definitely understand what you mean there. So when I get a bill and there's mints on it and I pay the bill, I'm taking both mints. You know why there's two mints though, right? Because my breath is bad. Because if there's two people, maybe they both ate garlic and perhaps they both need mints. And can we, I, do we need to extrapolate further? You understand what's happening here. This is what I've been doing wrong the whole time. I've been taking both mints. You need to carry banaka, share the mints, etc. Keep some gum in the car. You know, all those things. I don't. This is my problem. So as, as benign as benevolent sexism, as much of a overreaction as it might seem, there is some concerning things that come along with it. So there are studies that have correlated benevolent sexism with higher levels of hostile sexism. It's not a stretch to think that the same type of man who might put a woman on a pedestal or want to take care of the weaker sex would also be the kind that would assert that position later on, as you alluded to, with expectations. A really good example of that, and perhaps hyperbolic, is when a lot of women on social media post the kinds of DMs that they get from guys, and it would start with something like, you're beautiful and I would do anything for you. And then if the girl doesn't respond, it's like, F you bitch. I didn't want to talk to you anyway. I was just doing you a favor. And it turns very hostile Mm -hmm. when kindness isn't reciprocated immediately. And that clearly points to an idea that those guys had an expectation that if they do something nice for a girl, that a girl will then respond in kind and just be like down for anything, which is not an obligation if especially if there's no contract right you know flight of the concords a kiss is not yeah. a contract yeah. <laughs> well a dm is not a contract and that's for damn sure <laughs> and that that makes it really scary so even benevolent sexism especially on a first date and especially in a world of dating apps which we did an episode on if y'all want to check it out you don't know the person and as a female accepting something that Again, maybe it's benevolent, maybe it's benign, but if there's a, even a small chance that it is hostile, maybe it's better to just, hey, I'll open the door myself, I'll pay my half of the bill, don't want to owe you anything. And it's kind of a shame for, for people who maybe like this traditional interaction, like the idea of chivalry, but have to protect themselves on the female side of things or can't act in the way they naturally would on the man side of things because there's people in the DMs saying things, acting like that? I will say as a cis woman, there are a lot of dudes who are not really representing men very well. And they ruin it for a lot of the guys who actually do have positive intent. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because there's five separate studies I came across in researching for the episode that showed women prefer benevolently sexist men. Conveniently, the initials for benevolently sexist is BS. Um, And this is across all sorts of self-identified categories of feminism. So even strongly feminist identifying women prefer benevolently sexist men. 
despite everything we're saying. How do you feel about BS, Kelly? I'm full of it. I can understand why a lot of women would prefer that as it feels like there's a debt that men owe a lot of women and maybe benevolent sexism is a means of some guys kind of paying them back for the for the garbage that they've had to endure on the dating apps through going through college interactions with men, things like that. Maybe it is something that they will accept as perhaps this guy has good intent and will let him prove himself later. So it's okay that he picks up the check now. Perhaps that does not mean he has expectations because he picked up the check. I'm not comfortable with that on my, but I'm, I'm so cynical and you should know that by now, mm. but I can see that there might be some people out there with a glimmer of optimism in their eyes still. I like your reaction is they should do it because they owe us. <laughs> I mm. think, I think that the study mostly was talking about women who might uh, enjoy being provided for or enjoy being put on a pedestal. Maybe it it bodes well for the future of the relationship if it's somebody who does have the intention to take care of them or sees them as special or owes them for the tyranny of the patriarchy past. No, I that's possible. I will admit that. I just don't interact with that type of social like dynamic whatsoever anymore. So I think it's just weird at all when any guys express interest in girls. It's, what the what are you up to, buddy? <laughs> what do you have in mind? I don't know. For me, I think that uh, the balance is to offer to pay a check or offer to open a door and then, you know, respect it if it's turned down. But it, it's interesting to note because in a world neutral from gender roles, the offer wouldn't even be there. And I think that's what this debate or this conversation is about. It's about determining the default action. In this case, should the default action be to offer to pay the bill and then potentially somebody gets offended by that? You don't think I can pay the bill myself? Like, I'm independent. I can handle that. Don't be expecting me to be subservient to you, et cetera, et cetera. Or because we're afraid of that, should the default action be just right off the bat? Like, hey, so uh, are we going to split this or what? (laughs) And I promise you that would not go over well with a large number of people, at least from my experiences. I probably have set world records for how quickly I've responded to a server asking, will this be together or separate with separate (laughs) (laughs) immediately? I don't, I don't feel comfortable at all leaving that as ambiguous, but I realize that I am not like a lot of other people. I'm not like a lot of other women. I'm sure that other people treat those interactions a lot differently than I do. Well, as awkward as first interactions in dating can be, luckily, we all have marriage to look forward to where (laughs) theoretically, you've figured out sort of where each other's stance is on gender roles. And I don't know, maybe this is traditional thinking too, but let's assume this is the case. In a marriage, eventually, your role would become relatively codified, which part of the partnership is supposed to take up which duties? Do you think that traditional gender roles are useful in a situation like that? Less so now and less so in the United States where it is almost impossible to run a household without both partners working. In an era where a family could live off of 
one person's wages, thinking about, you know, the mid 20th century, once again, where a man could work and support an entire family off of that. And it made sense for a, a woman, the wife to just kind of keep the house and not have to work. It was different, but the economic situation we're in currently doesn't really lend itself to that type of dynamic naturally. So we're looking at a lot of situations where both partners are working and the women in most of these interactions based upon all of the social conditioning and expectations based upon gender are often performing additional unpaid labor on top of going to work full time. And it's not compensated or reciprocated by male partners in a lot of cases. Whether or not that's natural is up for debate, I guess, but it definitely seems unfair. So the breaking down of the traditional gender role has just expanded the duties of the women without changing the men's duties very much. I guess they can like barbecue or power wash the house once in a while. (laughs) I actually think that's an interesting example. So take cooking. When it comes to gender roles, you know, if the woman is going to cook the majority of the time, when does the man cook? The man cooks when it's time to barbecue. And it's a very like throwback to a Neanderthal era sort of meat, fire, rar. <laughs> you know, this is when I take the duty. But when it's vegetables, oh, vegetables taste like sad. You cook the vegetables. Oh, vegetables. Yeah, I think that's the case is that there are certain home maintenance tasks that are highly masculine and that's cool. I guess we can divide tasks up if they're equitable, but there are so far fewer of those compared to how many are falling on women's shoulders. Like cleaning the gutters seems like a very dude friendly task because you got to get the ladder out and get on the roof. And that happens like twice a year, maybe. But laundry happens every day, and that's very much assigned to women. Mm -hmm. But let's say, you know, there's so many things that have to be done. And especially now, like you point out, in a lot of families, both people are working. Do traditional gender roles help just make sure that everything gets covered? If, If every kid is just this hodgepodge of like, you do this random set of things and you do this other random set of things, how do you get a couple or how do you get a marriage where... They, one of them at least knows how to cook. One at least can do the laundry. One at least, I mean, I know I understand laundry is not complicated, but do having traditional gender roles ensure that all of the things that have to be covered to have a household, to raise kids, et cetera, all of that American dream sort of stuff, all of that happens. I don't think so, but I I live alone and I take care of everything for myself and I've lived with someone before and I recognize that there's almost never a way to divide things fairly or equally. I think my parents are a pretty good example of splitting things pretty equitably. My mom would do things like the things that were traditionally female, like cook and do laundry and stuff like that. But my dad would do so much towards home maintenance and a fair deal of the actual, um, cleaning and taking care of so much of the exterior of the home and home repairs that it actually functionally turned out to be like equivalent in terms of how much effort they expended. So I have that as a model to look to. And I see so many of my friends and so many other couples uh, who are parents of my friends who do not have that sort of split 
And it does seem like guys are getting away with something. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's let's go back and assume that you could survive on a single income. Because if we're talking about traditional gender roles, that's definitely how it looks. Guy goes to work, makes money, comes back home, woman takes care of the household. In a situation like that, how do we feel about that dynamic? There is no reason it had to be the man who has the job and earns the money, except when men don't earn the money and women do, they feel super fucking weird about it. I don't know. I feel pretty good about it. I just want to stay home and be a trophy wife. You know, and I want that for you. (laughs) Speaking of trophy wives and staying home, there's a entire movement that's starting to reemerge. Uh, which would be the trad wife movement that is literally taking us back to the 1950s and they get to wear the polka dot dress and curl their hair and take care of the kids and all of those traditional tasks. And it's sort of a throwback to, you know, what 1950s Americana. Mm -hmm. They see that that family unit structured in that manner as the building block for society at large. It definitely feels like it comes from a place of privilege because who can even afford to do that for starters? But there's a lot tied to that movement that kind of compensates for not engaging with traditional economies. They don't have to pay for childcare. If they're a stay-at-home mom, childcare is very expensive. They don't typically do quite as much grocery shopping because they do things like homesteading and do a lot of growing their own food and food preservation. And there's an emphasis in practices like evangelical Christianity about how the man is the leader of the household and the wife is a partner with the man, but in a supportive role and ultimately doesn't have many of the decision-making capabilities and usually had to defer to the judgment of her husband Trad wives very much encapsulate that with this sort of chosen subservience. Mm. That's what we mentioned earlier. One of the themes of the episode is, can we find a balance between being separate or specialized without being subservient? But a lot of the things you list, though, seems as though this relationship with these roles gives a family the tools to deal with some of the pressures of modern day society and some of the like capitalist demands that are placed on them in a way that might be better than people floating back and forth between roles, not very clearly defined, everybody trying to do everything. And in the end, nobody accomplishing really what it, what they want, a a stable family or a stable living situation to raise kids, et cetera. On that note, I want to acknowledge an aspect of trad wives and the sort of fundamentalism that I don't think we can really go into when we're talking about gender, but there is an ideology that fuels a lot of this interaction, which is built upon extreme conservatism and perhaps white supremacy. Focusing specifically on the gender dynamic here, it is a very strong adherence to specific expectations of genders that are built upon those arbitrary decisions that are made at the point where you know what parts a person has. I think that potentially the word arbitrary is a bit uncharitable because 
we talked about in the Nordic countries, for example, or we talked about with kids, for example, there are certain biological urges or or tendencies that each gender is going to have. And the roles in a traditional relationship certainly seem to take that into consideration as they push the men towards X tasks and the women towards Y tasks. I will admit that before we had a lot of social infrastructure to take care of children and things like community and organized society, that it made sense to have the biological women taking care of children because they would be the ones pregnant with the children and then they would be the ones nursing the children. And they were kind of tied to having children with them for a substantial portion of their adult lives that prohibited them from doing things like hunting and gathering. And at that time, because there was a specific biological function that could not be substituted with things like daycare, because there wasn't daycare in the Serengeti, it it made sense, right? That um, a man would do one thing and a woman would, would do a different thing. But at a time like this, when we have things like those social structures, any decision along those lines is completely by choice at this point, because we've instilled this traditional gender stereotype, gendered expectation that we didn't have to. It's true that we don't have to anymore, but I'm not convinced that we've necessarily evolved away from those biological urges. It's pretty self-evident that there are women who have that nurturing instinct still as an urge that were they not to fulfill it, they would not feel self-actualized. And there are men who feel that urge to provide that, again, if they were not able to provide, do not feel self-actualized. And I don't want to get too dark with it, but you know, we can look at men who feel like they've failed to provide for the family and what suicide rates look like in situations like that. So I definitely think that there's strong reason to believe that some of that biology is still inside of us, even though society around us might have evolved past where it's necessary. Doesn't mean it's not still there. There might be individuals who have those urges, but I think a lot of the people who feel like they have those urges might be able to trace that back to social conditioning. There are plenty of women I know who want nothing to do with children. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of men that I know who care more about being nurturing fathers than they care about being the breadwinner. And that might be a, a process of being reconditioned to undo those urges that are naturally occurring, or what's more likely is that that's actually what their natural urges are. And we now are we now are in a point of society where they're able to express themselves as they inherently are. Yeah, I guess this brings us back again to our our second theme of chicken and egg. Do people have these urges because they've been told by society's construction of what gender should look like? Or did society's construction of gender come about because people have these urges? I know that this is an argument by anecdote, but one case study that I think is interesting here is somebody that I know personally is a can cannot be described in any way other than hardcore feminist besides you Kelly and she ended up getting married moving out into the midwest and we talked a couple times about just an uh, an existential crisis she was having where she had gotten to the point where all she wanted 
was to be a traditional wife. She said, I want to take care of my husband. I want to raise kids. This is what I've decided is going to make me complete. And this is somebody who is very tuned in with everything you're talking about, societal pressures, conditioning, women's rights, feminism across the board. And it it really caused her a lot of distress where she felt as though her newfound desire to be a wife in a traditional sense put her in a position where she was betraying the feminist movement that she had cared so much about. Do you think it's possible for somebody to live a life with these traditional values if they choose it open-mindedly? Or do you think their existence kind of reinforces stereotypes that puts pressure on other people and takes that choice away from them? Well, the key there is interrogating the choice and trying to determine whether it was something that we came to naturally or something that was just an expectation that others made for us. Modern feminism, my brand of feminism, which is intersectional, I will add, because there is a lot of race and alternate societal factors that need to be included in my brand of feminism. But but my brand of feminism also takes into account that choices should be made freely and that we cannot demonize women for choosing things that previous brands of feminism would have rejected. Like a trad wife. Well, uh, yeah, first and second wave feminism definitely would not have accepted trad wives at all. If, if a trad wife is going into that freely, openly, knowingly, then we have to accept that that's a choice that she made of her own volition and we have to allow it. We can't demonize her for it. So what about you? You obviously think a lot about this issue. You have interrogated the kind of social pressures that might be put on you. Maybe you're not completely representative of a more optimistic society at large, but how would you see yourself in a long-term relationship? What kind of role would you see yourself fitting into? I would not. Mm. I've been there. I've done that. And I thought that's what I wanted for a long time. And I'm glad I actually got to explore that and know fully that that's not what I want. I feel very committed to the independence that I have right now. If I was going to be in a relationship, a long-term relationship, it would have to have certain understandings about sharing the load when it comes to the labor that it takes to keep a home. I right now live alone. I own my own home, which is very masculine of me. And it's pretty badass if I must say so myself. (laughs) Congratulations. I don't have to, but I will. And I recognize that that's a privilege, but it also is a lot of freedom because the only person I have to account for is myself. And I don't have to make sure decisions or defer to anybody else, which is pretty badass. If I were to be partnered again, and especially if I were ever to live with somebody again, there would need to be agreements about equitable task sharing. And it wouldn't be upon gendered lines. It would be upon preferences. Basically, what I'm saying is I will not ever date anyone again unless they're willing to do all the dishes. But do you do the baking? I know you do the baking. Do you do the cooking? Yeah, I'll do the cooking, but I would just want someone to clean up for me. (laughs) That seems reasonable. (laughs) 
So your take on this is obviously non-traditional. I'm curious though, say women who have a more traditional approach, who are planning on taking care of their husband or planning on having kids, taking care of the kids, and they're the ones that are getting wifeyed up. Does that, do you feel, put pressure on you and your decisions? Do you, do you feel as though you have to second guess your decisions on, am I doing something wrong? Am I missing out on something because of the actions that other women are taking? There was a time in my life where that would have been true, especially as I am approaching my 40s and a lot of things become less probable for me. And I see a lot of people experience life milestones that I haven't and, and maybe won't. There was a point in time where I was benchmarking myself against a lot of women my own age. But I also think that getting this close to my 40s has given me a sense of don't care. Mm -hmm. And and one of the things that has given me the most freedom is realizing that I am the captain of this ship. And sometimes other people's goals don't have to be mine. There, There are some like very traditionally femme things that I still care a lot about, like nail polish and keeping a clean home, I guess, if that's necessarily femme. And cats. Well, again, you have a cat. I do. Would you say that you're femme? No, but I also don't care about my cat because she hates me. So I'm spite hating her back. You care about your cat. She's listening. Don't tell her. If she knew that would be a problem. That would, it would create a disparity in our gender (laughs) balance here. (laughs) So weird. Um, No, I don't, I don't really feel any pressure from seeing other people in my similar age and educational background doing things differently than I do. There's a certain freedom with not having to measure your own choices against the choices of others. And I think that people in their twenties, and that's often when people get married and make these decisions care more than they would if they waited until they were in their thirties and could determine if that was really what they wanted. Now that I'm this age, I don't care anymore. I almost got married in my twenties. It's Definitely good. I didn't, but I can only see that now from this side of my thirties. So you as a man, Mm -hmm. what is your take on all of this with your maleness? A man with a cat. (laughs) I I feel emasculated that I had to give up a dog for a cat. I do believe that there are inherent biological differences that will manifest if people are given complete autonomy. This is assuming we're looking at populations as a whole. Of course, given that gender is not as black and white as its version that's most convenient for us to conceptualize, and that there are exceptions to every rule, there's always going to be people who don't fit neatly into the boxes we create. But I don't think that the answer lies in denying that those boxes exist or that they don't serve a purpose for a lot of people out there. I think that the important thing is to establish equivalent levels of respect between genders and the various roles that people can play in our society. A woman should be able to enter a, quote, male-dominated field without feeling out of place, even if she's the minority in that particular workplace. A teacher or nurse should be paid equivalent wages to their private sector counterparts for comparable educational or experience levels. 
On the romance side, a couple that comes together with both partners enjoying full agency and decides to carve out specific roles for each other for the sake of their relationship or children should be able to define what that looks like for themselves without interference or judgment. I think that this would be an example of a world where any particular path that someone chooses, regardless of where they lie on a gender spectrum, culminates in a result where they are respected, compensated, and treated fairly. And if that world shows discrepancies in the roles that people settle into in their relationships or society at large, I'm okay with it. Josh and I obviously have our own opinions, but there are probably a lot of other opinions out there about gender roles, relationships, how to raise children. And we would really love to hear from anybody who has any thoughts about these topics. And if you'd like to reach out to us, we are accessible on Twitter and Facebook at IndubitablyPod. And while you're around the internet, maybe you could, uh, subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating, which you know we've totally earned. (laughs) The uh, men can reach us at Twitter and the women can reach us on Facebook. I am going to hurt you. (laughs) Although both of those have blue logos, so maybe they should both be for the men. Where can the women reach us on Pinterest? Oh, yeah, probably. (laughs) We do not have a Pinterest. We have an email at (laughs) indubitablypodcast at gmail.com. That's a red logo. Mm, which is almost pink. Mm -hmm. We've got it all covered. We're here for everybody.